now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus, in verse 11. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus. His earthly ministry is concluding. And now he has turned his face toward Jerusalem and will begin to journey there where, as we know and everyone knows, he will die on a Roman cross. As we believe, he will give himself up as a sacrifice for all of humanity, for each one of us. And so his journey begins, and he crosses between Galilee and to the south of Galilee, an area called Samaria. He's walking through a sort of no man's land, traveling between a, an area that is, is an area that is very Jewish, right? And an area that is very much not Jewish. In fact, the enemies of the Jews live in Samaria, and Jesus' journey will take him into this no man's land. And as he travels, he could hear them before he saw them. What he heard were men yelling, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. The ten men who were shouting were lepers. Thank God we don't know a lot about leprosy today. There's not a lot of leprosy in the United States. You might find some in some remote parts of the third world, but thankfully you and I don't have to worry much about that today because it was truly a horrible disease. It started out, the symptoms with tiny white dots on your eyelids or on the palms of your hands. And this would gradually spread as the disease would eat more and more healthy flesh, producing a white cadaver-like tone of color on the body as it advanced. The disease would numb nerve endings and, and, and would cause uh, the lack of sensation in a person's skin where they would no longer in the affected area feel either pain or pleasure. A finger might dislodge, fall off. A hunk of flesh might come off of a leper's leg, and they, they might not notice for a while because there wasn't feeling in that part of the body. They were something like zombies. They were something like walking dead, like people who were somewhere between the land of the living and, and the land of the dead. So now, no doubt these ten lepers were each at, at different stages in the progression of this horrible disease, but all of them understood that even worse then the physical symptoms were the social symptoms of this disease. In the Old Testament, very strict and very specific guidelines were set for people with leprosy, set to protect those who were well, to prevent the, the spread of this contagious disease. And so these rules may have kept the illness from spreading but they also created a terrible dynamic 
of isolation and hopelessness for the person who was suffering from leprosy. Just real quickly from Leviticus. We don't usually read from Leviticus in here on Sunday morning. Leviticus chapter 13, verses 45 to 46. Prescriptions laid down in the law of Moses here. The person with such an infectious disease must, and try to visualize this person who's following these prescriptions. The person with this infectious disease with leprosy must wear torn clothes, must let his hair be unkempt, must cover the lower part of his face and cry out, unclean, unclean. As long as he has the infection, he remains unclean. He must live alone. He must live outside the camp. So as if the disease itself isn't enough, assurances were made that no one would come in contact with a person who had contracted leprosy. They remove themselves from society. They cover their face with a mask. They don't cut their hair. They don't wash their hair. That's forbidden by the law. They have to live out in no man's land. And if they hear someone or see someone getting close, they must shout, unclean, unclean. Imagine the nightmares that children had because of these people. Imagine the way children would avoid the area where the lepers lived. So the lepers would band together. They couldn't spend time anymore with their spouse or with their children. They couldn't have contact with business associates or friends or the bridge club or the bowling team. They had to be isolated. When food and gifts were brought to the lepers, they would be lowered down by rope into the, ca- the entrance of the cave of the lepers, or they would be left a distance from the dwelling of the lepers as the person who left the gift would scurry away as quickly as possible. It was a horrible disease in, in so many ways. After you were diagnosed and you began to live this isolated life of the leper, you, you, you might see your wife again. You might see your loved ones again, but only from a distance. They might shout, and I love you. I'm thinking about you. I'm praying for you from a distance. But we know how human nature is. Over time, they probably saw less and less and less of those they cared about. The visits would become less frequent the sense of isolation more overwhelming. By the way, since there is no known cure for leprosy at this time, it is a hopeless situation. It's not like I'm going to get better, all right? And so these 10 lepers in Luke chapter 17 are desperate and crying out for help. They are men who have lived for some time without feeling the touch of family members, without the companionship of sharing a meal with their friends, without seeing a shopkeeper's smile as they shop or or enjoying the bartering and the noise of the marketplace, without talking about religion or politics at the barbershop, without getting invited to a bar mitzvah, 
never getting invited to a wedding or anything else for that matter, never sitting among the brothers and singing hymns in the synagogue. When they see Jesus and when they see the crowd of believers that surely was around Jesus in the distance, they make the collective decision to cry out for help. Luke chapter 17, verse 13, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. They don't just call him rabbi, right, or teacher. They call him epistates, which means commander, ruler, master. Master, have mercy on us. We're used to hearing stories about Jesus healing sick people all the time. Go through the Gospels. He's healing the blind. He's healing the deaf. He's raising the dead. We can almost get a gospel numbness when we read stories like this. But it's good to slow down. It's good to make sure that we don't miss what's happening in the story because each story is different. And these aren't nameless masses. These are real people, real sons and daughters, real husbands and wives, real human beings who were in great suffering who encountered Jesus. And as each of them cries out for mercy, I wonder how long it's been since these lepers have shook someone's hand since they've been hugged, since they've been tickled by their children, or since they've been kissed by their spouse. This is kind of the funny thing here, though. Each of these ten, they did have a few things going for them. And I want to talk about that just for a minute, because these are some things not everyone does have going for them. And you're probably thinking, what can they have going for them? Well, for starters, the ten lepers in Luke chapter 17 knew they were sick. And you're like, well, of course they knew they were sick. They're turning white. They smell like rotten flesh. Of course they know they're sick. But they knew they were sick, and they knew they weren't getting any better unless God got involved. They had that going for them. And you may be thinking, big deal. Of course they knew they were sick. You've got a point. But here's the thing. How many people do you know that have no idea they're sick? How many people do you know that are just putting cover-up cream on sickness and pretending that everything is okay? How many people do you know that won't fess up to the sickness they have? Sick with selfishness. That's destroying Precious relationships. Sick with greed, where they're hoarding more and more as they watch their neighbors in need. And they've grown numb and callous, like a leper's skin, to the need of their neighbor. How many are sick with pornography and lust? How many are sick with anger and bitterness? How many are sick and they don't even know it? Or they're sick and they're pretending that they're okay. These lepers have, have a leg up on these people. They know they're sick. I got to confess, I kind of debated whether to use this or not. I'm not sure about Monty Python's Holy Grail in church, okay? But... I've opted to share this with you because it is, a, it is a hilarious scene, and I think it makes a point. 
If you've seen the movie, you, you remember the scene where King Arthur encounters an obstacle in his way. It is the Black Knight. And the Black Knight is armed and presumably dangerous and will not allow King Arthur to pass. As they lock swords and begin the battle, the battle does not go well for the Black Knight. First, one arm is chopped off. Then Arthur strikes again and the other arm falls off. But the Black Knight seems to notice nothing. Thinks he's just fine. With both arms removed from his body, the Black Knight tells Arthur, I'm fine. It's just a flesh wound. The Black Knight is unwilling to acknowledge how grave his situation is. And then they have this dialogue. King Arthur says, now, he's lying in this pool of blood, or he's actually standing in one at this point. Now stand aside, worthy adversary. The Black Knight, tis but a scratch. King Arthur, a scratch? Your arm's off. The Black Knight, no it isn't. <laughs> King Arthur, what's that then? <laughs> The Black Knight, I've had worse. King Arthur, you liar. The Black Knight, come on, you pansy. Poor guy is completely falling to pieces, but thinks he's doing just fine. Behind the humor, there is the truth. <laughs> that a lot of people look a lot like the Black Knight. A lot of people are dying emotionally, or physically, or psychologically, or in a dying relationship, or in a dying business, or they're dying inside. Their emotions are dying, and they pretend that everything is a-okay. Don't need any help. Doing great. The ten men who see Jesus at the distance, they know they're not okay. They're sick physically. They're sick socially. They're sick spiritually. They're dying in all ways possible. And as strange as this may sound, my prayer for some people is that they will look in the mirror and see how sick they are. That they will smell the stench of death in their life and understand how sick they are. That's my prayer for some people. So these guys know they're sick, and that puts them ahead of a lot of people they're not in denial. They have another thing going for them, a big thing going for them. They believed that Jesus could do something about their situation. They believed. They had faith. And they call him epistates, commander. They knew that Jesus was the commander of demons, spiritual demons, physical demons, he could command those forces, and they believe that Jesus can make them well. And if you, look, if you're dying of cancer, I mean, if you're stage four and, and the prognosis is not good, and your next door neighbor is the world leader in cancer research, this doctor, this researcher who lives next door to you has cured thousands and thousands of people. You would be an idiot not to knock on her door and say, here's my situation, can you help? You would understand 
She can help. She knows something about this situation. She's helped people where you're at. And these guys believe that Jesus, the great physician, can do something about their situation. And so they're going to cry out to him. Jesus, Jesus, I want you to know that Jesus is near, right? These aren't just distant. This isn't just a distant Messiah who lived and died. and He's resurrected. He is near to each of us. He cares about each person. He loves each person. And he loves people no matter what kinds of sickness and darkness have begun to take over their lives. Jesus loves the adulterer. Jesus loves the homosexual. Jesus loves the greedy. He loves the bitter person. He loves every person. And he longs to bring wellness into their lives. He yearns to give them freedom and purpose, but many simply do not believe that he can help, or they do not believe that they need any help. Many refuse to humble themselves and yield to Jesus as Lord, as commander. The ten lepers, all ten of them, had these things going for them, the fact that they knew they were sick, the fact that they believed Jesus could help them, they also, all ten of them, took that faith and put it into action. All ten of these guys followed the instructions of Jesus. He tells them in Luke chapter 17, verse 14, it says, when he, Jesus, saw them, he said, go and show yourselves to the priests. As they went, they were cleansed. Jesus said, go, and they went. They obeyed him. Now, this thing about the priests, this was like getting a doctor's note saying you're okay to go back to school or whatever. This in this culture, in this society, is regulated by the law of Moses. This was what you needed to do to be reintegrated, in, to go home to your family, to go back to work, to go back to the bowling alley, wherever it was that you wanted to go, you needed the doctor's note. You needed the priest to say, all right, you look clear. I declare you to be clean. And so Jesus says, go ahead and start down to the, the priest's home and have the priest check you out. And they were doing this. But before they can get to the priest's house, they begin to notice that they're better. <laughs> They're 100% better. Now, they still need to go there. They still need to get that note. They still need to be cleared and declared that they're fine. But imagine at that moment, as they're on their way to the priest's house, imagine the high fives and imagine the hallelujahs as they realize their horrendous, hopeless ordeal is over. They're fine. Imagine the jubilation. And this is where we pick up the part of the story we remember most about the story. Catches our attention, starting in verse 15. One of them, one of these ten fellows, when he was healed, he came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten 
cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said, rise up and go. Your faith has made you well. Only one came back to say thanks to Jesus. Maybe they were all thankful. I would presume that they were all thankful. I mean, come on. All grateful. I mean, but they had priorities. They had a to-do list. First things first, I got to go see my family. First thing first, I've got, I've got a few business affairs I need to resolve. And maybe they're thinking, I'll come back to Jesus later. I'll look him up. I'll find out where he's preaching or where he's healing, and I'll go, and I'll share my story, and I'll say thanks. But of course, Jesus is on his way to the cross. There will be no time for that. They don't know that. What we know is this. Jesus noticed. Jesus noticed that nine out of ten were gone. Only one came back to thank him. What we know is, in this group of underdogs, the runt of the litter, the Samaritan, the outsider, he's the one who comes running back. He's the one who throws himself at the feet of Jesus. He's the one who worships God, who praises the Lord, the Samaritan of all people. And just a little note here, if anybody ever suggests to you that you're praising God a little too loud, can you keep it down? You've got book, chapter, and verse, folks. <laughs> I like this verse. Chapter 17, verse 15. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, he came back praising God in a loud voice. Woo! Praise God! It's okay to get loud about your joy for God. It's okay to be quiet. But it's certainly okay to get a little loud about what Jesus has done for you. Thank you. Now, it's certainly good to get loud about what Jesus has done for you. There you go. All right. Let me share a couple of things from this story that I think Put a calling on us as disciples of Jesus. First, not a shocker, I suppose. Here we are in a church of Christ, but we need to be a little more like Jesus. I mean, that's what we're supposed to say, right? We're Christians. We need to be a, a little bit more like Jesus. But I think that's what the story claims us to do, calls us to do. Um, being Jesus means reaching out to people like these folks. People who are on the outside. People who are living on the margins. People who feel the disdain of the community around them. People who, who are the Samaritans of their world, of their city, of their neighborhood. People who, who know us like to feel shunned and avoided by others. Jesus reached out to those people. People living in the no man's land. These are people who are going to stretch us. These people. 
So this story talks to me and it says, Gordon, what about the poor? Gordon, what about the Muslim community? The going default mode is be scared of them, be suspicious of them, they're out to get us. But how would Jesus treat those folks? Loves them. He loves them. How would Jesus treat the homosexual community? He loves those people. And so who are those living on the margins? Who are those who are outsiders, who are accustomed to not getting a hug from a Christian? <laughs> who are those people? You know, if I'm a follower of Jesus, I look for people who are on the outside. I look for people who are disadvantaged or marginalized or oppressed. I look for those people. I look for people whose lives have been torn about, uh, apart by poverty or torn about by sin. I look for those people. And I want to be the hands and feet of Jesus, sharing the love of God with those people. And hopefully, yes, someday... After they know that I care, they'll hear the word of the Lord from me as well. But they're never going to hear the word of the Lord unless they see the love of the Lord. Remember, Jesus said of his mission a couple of chapters later in chapter 19, verse 10, Me, the Son of Man, I came to seek and save that which was lost. And by the way, there are so many stories at Preston Crest, so many good stories. I mean, I've heard some this week of ways that this church is reaching out into those places of need in our community. And I celebrate those. I celebrate those. And I know that Jesus smiles when he sees us going into places where others perhaps don't dare tread. It's a beautiful thing. So we need to be more like Jesus. Second, we need to, we need to appreciate more what Jesus has done for us. I think it's no accident that Jesus said, you know, Every single week, why don't you guys sit around my table and remember what I did for you? Gratitude is the fuel of the Christian life. And so we come this morning as grateful lepers who have been cured. Thank you, Jesus. We hold on to his feet and we worship. I love this little piece of that Christian author Jared Wilson wrote. He, he wrote a book called Gospel Wakefulness, and he wrote a little piece about us being grateful because of the gospel. And I'm just going to read this to you. I found it to be powerful for me. He says, imagine that you are driving down the road and your car stalls at a railroad crossing. You're understandably nervous as you try to restart the car's engine, but you become even more so when you see a train turn the corner in the distance and begin to quickly close the gap between it and you. The train's horn is blaring. The engineer has thrown on the brakes, but you're too close, and he's coming too fast. You move from trying to get the car to start to trying to unfasten your seatbelt, but fear has made your hands stiffen and shake. You can't get your seatbelt unfastened. 
the train is rushing toward you and you know you're going to be hit and you are. Suddenly, and from behind, a man in a truck behind you has decided to ram your car and push you off the tracks even as he is destroyed by the impact in the very spot you once occupied. You get out of the car, shaken and still frightened. You're terrified by the gruesome scene, in shock over your rescuer sacrifice. You are grateful in a way you have never been grateful before. Even in your terrified awe, it feels good to be alive. You feel woozy, so you sit down on the trunk of your car. And as you're trying to retrieve your cell phone from your pocket and call 911, marveling at how little damage was done to your car, you hear a whimper from inside. You didn't know that before you'd left the house as your kids were playing hide and seek. Your youngest son decided to hide in the trunk of your car. As you open it up and frantically search for your son, you discover that he is unharmed. And you suddenly realize the total greatness of the loss you almost suffered. Your gratitude, your amazement, your new outlook on life takes a giant leap forward. As Jared Wilson concludes, that is the difference between the gospel wakefulness of conversion and the greater wakefulness that often occurs later. You see, at the moment you decide to accept Christ, the moment you yield to Him, you are baptized into Jesus. There is a great joy in your spirit. There is a great sense of, of freedom because of the, the sacrifice of the one. But as you walk with the Lord year after year, you discover that what He won for you was far greater than you ever realized in the beginning. And you become more grateful not less. 